This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the Edition Podcast. I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor. Each week we look at some of the pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. Coming up this week, we ask whether Donald Trump will have a second shot at the presidency. We look at the paradoxical relationships between Scottish identity and the Union and ask whether bad taste humour is on the way out. First up, Freddie Gray has written this week's cover piece about the return of Donald Trump. He joins me now to discuss his piece with Sarah Baxter, former deputy editor of the Sunday Times. Freddie, when it comes to whether Trump will run for re-election in 2024, is it now no longer a question of if, but when he will announce his candidacy? I'm not sure we're quite there yet. I think there are some doubts within Trump world as to whether he'll actually go for it. But the consensus view among that rather strange section of the American right is that he almost certainly will. And that the only person who really knows is Donald Trump. But if you listen to what he's been saying recently, he seems to be excited. He thinks that history has vindicated him. And he, he gave this interview to New York Magazine last week in which he said, the only thing in my mind is, do I go before or after? And he meant before or after the midterms, which were in November. And that suggested very much that he's thinking he's going to go for it. It's just a question of when. Sarah, do you, do you agree with Freddie's analysis there? And, and I think particularly there's, there's a bit in Freddie's article where he suggests that, that Trump might be motivated by the sense of uh, wanting to get revenge on Joe Biden for beating him in, in 2020. So a sort of round two situation would be something that he, he, he wants. I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, Trump has always been about his own grievances. Where I disagree with Freddie is that Trump is excited about the idea of running again. I actually think he's getting quite panicky. And the idea that he might declare before the midterm elections, even this summer, which definitely rumours are gathering in strength right now, the only reason he would declare this early, which might cost him in some fundraising rules, only reason is because he's scared that the air is going out of his balloon and that unless he jumps in and tries to bigfoot all the other candidates and intimidate them from standing against him, there's going to be a Republican free-for-all and he's going to lose. Freddie, what do you think about the idea, as Sarah put it there, that the, the air is going out of his balloon? Or do you think actually there's still a lot of support for Donald Trump within the party? I think the air perhaps is going slightly out of the balloon. I think people are very keen to pretend that it's gone out more from the balloon to sort of carry this metaphor on a bit, that he's in bigger trouble with the party than he is. I mean, the facts are very clear. People like to talk a lot about how the power of Trump endorsement is not as strong as it was because various candidates that he has backed have failed this year. But the fact is, if you look at his record this year, it's you know 140 versus 10 uh, Trump endorsements have won. He is the fundraising mechanism for the party. It has diminished a bit, as you'd imagine it, it would. But if you talk to anybody who raises money for the Republican Party, they'll tell you. You put Trump's name on something, you get money. You don't, you take it off, you get almost nothing. So if he does run, what do you think happens then to other Republican leadership 
hopefuls? I mean, do any of them, as you see it, stand a chance of beating him in the primaries? Well, the, 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 big, the big name that everyone's talking about is Ron DeSantis. And certainly it's true that he has emerged as Trump too, if you like. He has that amazing ability to make opponents go mad in a way that advances his own agenda. Uh, he's been a very successful governor for Florida. But the people I've spoken to for this piece in, in Trump world don't really see him as a threat. It's true that uh, New York Times recently had him catching up with Trump in, in a poll, but it's still 25% versus 50%. Trump is still the sun around which everything else orbits, or is it the other way around? I, I mean, what, what would be interesting and what a lot of people have said is that they, Nigel Farage, who does talk to Trump a fair bit, said he's pretty certain that DeSantis will be Trump's vice presidential nominee. Uh, they just have to get around the fact that they both live in, live in Florida. So Trump would have to sort of declare in, in New Jersey. And Sarah, what do, you, what do you make of that? Do you think if you are, a let's say, an anti-Trump Republican, who would you now want to pin your hopes on to stop him uh, winning in primaries? Well, I even know Trump Republicans who really want DeSantis to win now. They love Trump. They're always saying they love Trump. They're devoted to him. Thank you for your service, sir. But we're ready to move on and uh, vote for the next Republican candidate, the man of the future, and that, that they see as Ron DeSantis. There are so many. I even know somebody who attended the January 6th Stop the Steal rally who says she now backs DeSantis, even though she loves Donald Trump, because she does talk to women, independent women, suburban swing voters, etc. She's a Republican activist and she knows that Trump is toxic with that group and remains so. You can see it in those favorability polls where even a weak Joe Biden beats Donald Trump at the moment, but they all think that DeSantis is the bee's knees. So the trouble is that Trump is still the dominant voice in the party. He kind of owns the base of the party, which is increasingly what used to be the nutty fringe of the Republican Party. And he very much holds sway. I don't deny his influence at all, as you were suggesting, Freddie, over selection, etc. Despite some setbacks, he is still mostly the kingmaker in the Republican Party. But I'd say this as well about DeSantis and Nigel Farage's comments. DeSantis would be nuts to accept to be Trump's vice president, right? Because Trump falls out and burns everybody who's ever been loyal to him. Everybody who he's ever appointed in his cabinet has turned out to be some sort of idiot or stupid or loser. And even the most loyal vice president in, in history, Mike Pence, fell foul of Donald Trump. And that has terminated Pence's chances of succeeding him. So what has DeSantis got to lose by throwing his hand in the ring now? In fact, if he doesn't throw his hat into the ring, it would be making as historic a mistake, I think, as when Gordon Brown didn't stand when Neil Kinnock resigned as Labour Party leader, let John Smith take over. And then it turned out that the next person in line was no longer Gordon Brown, but was this newcomer called Tony Blair. Ron DeSantis, this is his moment. If he doesn't do it now, then when? I think you're, you're absolutely right in, the, in that uh, Trump does throw all, everyone who's close to him under the bus if and when he needs to. I suppose what, what I heard from a lot of Republicans this week was why would he want to stand in what will inevitably be a bruising, vicious fight with Donald Trump? And one that, you know, the odds suggest, the weight of Trump support suggests he will lose. Obviously, there's a long, long time to go. A lot can change. But the, but the fact is that the Trump movement is unprecedented in American politics. And he still has that brand name, that brand support. 
that massive movement that is particularly loyal to him in spite of everything. Well, where I agree with you is I think that Trump's still the big banana, the big cheese, the brand name. And actually, if DeSantis enters the ring, so will a whole host of other candidates. Mm. And Trump will have his base of support and the rest will be divvying up between them. And that provides him with an opportunity again to win, just as he did last time in 2016 by seeing off, you know, Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, etc., Marco Rubio, mm. and so forth. I still think, though, that Trump is under pressure, that he has never been able to persuade 50% of the American public to back him, mm. ever. And that's the problem. That problem hasn't gone away. If anything, it's got worse because of the movement. I mean, there's no doubt everybody's fed up with Joe Biden, including Democrats. But there are some things that people will not put up with, and that's the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th. And in so many people's eyes, that remains the ultimate disqualifying event, and they won't hear of backing Trump again, even if they want to vote Republican. You mentioned the dissatisfaction with Biden, even among Democrats. As, as Freddie suggests in his piece, there's an increasing expectation that Biden may in fact not stand for re-election under the Democratic ticket in 2024. Do, do you think that seems likely? Or do you think he's, he's uh, in it for an attempted second term? Of course he's in it for an attempted second term. In fact, I, re I wrote a column almost as soon as he got elected saying, he's not going to be transitional, he's going to want to stand again. You know, he's been waiting all his life to be president. You think he's going to make way for some Johnny-come-lately now? No way. And I think he's proved that. He said that he really wants to stand again. And it's very, very difficult to run against a sitting president. It's one thing to run against a defeated president like Donald Trump. Joe Biden's the sitting president. But he's deeply unpopular in the country. He's way too old. I mean, he would be 86 at the end of his second term in office were he to win. I mean, there are people like my, my son who says, I don't want to vote for anybody who's going to be over 80. <laughs> and there's a real movement amongst youth that they just, you know, that crucial, you know, 18 to 26-year-old vote does not support uh, Joe Biden running again. But unlike the Republican Party, the Democrats have a big problem, which is, who is the rising new star? Republicans have one that, in my view, they'd be foolish to neglect. I'm not a huge DeSantis fan. I'm just reading the ruins here and saying he is the heir apparent. But who is the heir apparent to Joe Biden? You know, the Democrats are becoming a real gerontocracy. And of course, the Republicans would be as well if they re-elected Trump, who would be, you know, President in his late 80s. I said, sorry, late 70s. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, just in the piece, I spoke to quite a, a perceptive Republican who said no sane person thinks that Joe Biden's going to stand again. And then he paused for a bit. And then he said, then again, Joe Biden isn't sane. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's the problem is they may find themselves stuck with Joe Biden because ultimately, if Joe Biden doesn't want to move out of the way, how are they going to get rid of him? It's, it's quite a difficult thing to do. They do not have an obvious replacement. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is a name get, that gets cast around. I don't think anybody really thinks he's got any chance of winning he, he the presidency. He polls 0% with African-American voters. That's one, yeah. Yeah. one, I, of, I, one of his He's got problems. a real problem with African-American voters who are still pretty loyal to Kamala Harris, who polls very badly with everybody else. So there's a real problem there. Obviously, if she had been a dynamic successor, I mean, she looked pretty good on Inauguration Day. I thought she looked like a breath of fresh air. I thought she was terrific. But a lot of people who felt that way have been rather disappointed by her performance. So 
Trump and Biden have the same problem though. Who's going to tell them to get out of the way? Trump won't listen to anybody except kooks like Rudy Giuliani, it appears. And uh, Joe Biden, I asked this of Democrats once, they said, well, I think his wife Jill Biden is going to have to tell him to go, you know, it's time to step down, dear old Joe. But I don't think Jill Biden's is displaying any indication of telling Joe his time's up either. No, why, why would they want to, you know, sign off on four years of failure? Of course they wouldn't. Looking ahead a little bit to the November midterm, so the current assumption is that it's going to be something of a Democrat wipeout in the midterms. Sarah, do you think if Trump announces that he's going to run, let's and, and let's say he does it before those midterms, do you think that actually that might galvanize a lot of Democratic base and mobilize them against Trump and the Republican Party, which could mean that actually the, the assumption we have now that November will be a wipeout might be overstated? Well, the Republicans are terrified that he'll declare early, not only because he might freeze the field, but also because he will have a bad impact on the midterm elections. After all, he basically handed the Senate to the Democrats when he, uh, with all his antics in Georgia after the 2020 election, he's performed much worse than Republicans have performed in the sort of generic down-ballot contests, etc. So he's a proven loser for the Republican Party. They do better without him. Glenn Youngkin proved in Virginia that they can do quite well without Trump's, too much of Trump. You know, he was basically asked to keep his distance, stay away from Virginia. So the Republicans don't want Donald Trump to declare early and the Democrats are, are salivating for Trump to declare early. They would love that. They'd love to make it an issue about Trump, about democracy, and also about the Supreme Court, about abortion rights, and about gay marriage, threats to your individual family freedoms that you've been taking for granted for decades. So what they don't want to talk about, because these are difficult issues for them, are the economy, inflation, the border, etc. But do you think that's that's right? Or do you think the Democrats should be careful what they wish for if they want to? Uh, I think Trump that, that, may, that may well be right. I think, but never underestimate the ability of the Democrats to turn advantage into weakness. Because, I mean, if you look at something like abortion, where, yes, uh, it's absolutely true they can rally the they can rally the base, they can win over independents on that issue, who are they're not going to want to go where the Republican Party are on row. But in fact, Democrats start talking about abortion as an absolute moral certainty, not even a moral certainty, but a moral good. Do we think that, you know, the mainstream of America is there, the mainstream of even the Democratic Party are there? No, they're not. They don't uh, so have to talk about abortion as a moral good. They just have to talk about, you know, the 10-year-old who was poo-pooed as non-existent and fake news by the right, who was, in fact, a genuine person who had been raped as a child, still a child, well, and had to be sent to a neighboring state uh, from yes, Ohio then, to Indiana they, to have what, an abortion at six weeks and two days. I take that point. But then what do they do? They legislate for a bill that guarantees abortion up to birth, including abortion for trans people. That's people who can't get pregnant. That is the level of sort of insanity we're dealing with in the Democratic Party. So you, they, they you can make it theoretical like it's that. Not theoretical. But there are they going to be that. That's no, not theoretical. No, no, but it, it's just you know a legal piece of paper. What you're actually going to see are women already hard cases of women suffering and possibly even dying for the lack of availability of abortion. And the idea that you can ban abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, when most people, including that poor 10-year-old, would barely know she was pregnant, and not have any exceptions in some states, including my mother's home state of Ohio, for rape and incest, is just inhumane. 
Well, I don't think we're going to get anywhere on that. But let's take another issue, which should be a natural win for the Democrats, which is January 6th. Of course, it should be a win for the Democrats that Trump seemed to encourage and cultivate what led to incredibly embarrassing scenes for America all over the world and a disastrous day for American democracy, et cetera, et cetera. That's an obvious win for the Democrats. What do they do? They conduct the January 6th hearings, which are, in fact, farcical. You know, there's no Republicans on the ticket. The Republicans. Whose fault is that? Well, the people the Republicans put up, who was it, Meadows, and I can't remember who the other one was. The fact is, they put them up, and Nancy Pelosi said, no, we don't accept them because we don't want any sort of debate, any sort of discussion that doesn't suit us. This is not a Trumpist talking point. It's just true. And my point is, if you want to defeat Donald Trump, there are lots of ways to do it. But the fact is, the Democrats always manage to find a way in which they overreach. They mess it up. They end up looking like they're crazier than Donald Trump, which is quite an achievement when you think about it. I love the way you talk about that the events of January 6 are embarrassing. And then you say quite low-voiced, disastrous, blah, blah, blah. You said it in your column, in fact, that, yeah, January 6 was embarrassing. It wasn't embarrassing. It was alarming. It was terrifying to look at the state of American democracy on that day, to see that Trump was, what Trump was trying to achieve with his fraudulent constitutional coup advised by John Eastman. Well, the whole thing I'm gonna go, was far more I'm gonna Im- go than embarrassing. It was shameful. I'm going to go all Trumpy on you here. How do you think a lot of Americans felt about the Black Lives Matter riots when you had literally American cities on fire for weeks and most Democrats were not just not condemning it, they were actively supporting it. And you had yeah, people like, like Kamala Harris, you had people like Kamala Harris, who is now Vice President of the United States, posting a link to a bail fund for people that have been arrested in those riots. Most Americans look at that and they go, that is crazy. They look at January 6th, they say that is also crazy. And then they think they are left with two choices of terrible crazy and they have to choose between them. Well, I think they'd better choose more wisely than that. I mean, the idea that the Black Lives Matter riots um, have any connection in scale to the assault on the Capitol and the attempted constitutional coup against American democracy that Donald Trump wanted to bring about is just ridiculous whataboutery. I don't think it is whataboutery. I mean, I'm all for the accusation of whataboutery normally, but I just don't think it is. I mean, how many people died in the Black Lives Matter riots? And why did the Black Lives Matter riots start? Because of George Floyd. Who died. Was being killed, yes. At the hands of the police. But do you think it's an appropriate response to a riot in... No, I don't. And I don't think, I don't think... In many cases, black-owned businesses. No, and I don't think it was an appropriate response of Donald Trump to declare immediately after the election that the entire votes of Pennsylvania, where I voted, should simply be disqualified because he didn't like the outcome. I mean, honestly, that's what he said. He said, let's stop the count, you know, because he wanted to throw out any votes in Philadelphia, any votes in Atlanta any votes in um, Phoenix, Arizona, all those swing states, because he didn't like what urban voters had decided democratically. He wanted to stop the count and declare himself the victor on election night. Uh, It was absolutely shameful, shocking, alarming, frightening. And I'm not going to get into an argument as to whether or not it's worse than the Black Lives Matter protest, because I think that is unworthy of debate even. It's an unworthy comparison. Okay, I take it back. And, but again, I would, I would say that I, I am not going to defend Donald Trump after the election. I think he threw an enormous tantrum and it was deeply shameful 
for America. Tantrum. However, Not a coup, just a tantrum. But was it a coup? Attempted. I mean, a coup is such a ridiculous word. Attempted coup. Attempted coup. Failed. You go, Miserably you go, failed you think he was, in the terms of... You think you know, he was texting the Proud Boys saying, go here now? Do you think that was sort of going on? I think that some of his friends were definitely in conversations with Proud Boys. I met Proud Boys who considered themselves to be the sort of armed wing of the Trump movement, They're the Trump Praetorian Guard. And they were definitely um, very much in cahoots with Roger Stone, who Trump pardoned and was a great ally of Donald Trump. And so were the Oath Keepers. But I'm, I'm talking more about the attempt, you know, the, the idea that you could replace the, the head of the Justice Department, the attempt to put in a placeman um, instead of the head of the CIA, Gina Haspel, all those other moves that were taking place, the idea that you could replace a genuine set of electors with a fraudulent set of electors from swing states. I'm not talking about, but you if, know, just a, if, if you, a riot at the Capitol. <laughs> if, if, if you care about democratic norms, then surely the January 6th committee should have Republican representatives that are chosen by the Republican Party. That's democratic norms. That's how it's supposed to work. I just say, I don't even think you need the January 6th committee to know that that Trump ought to be disqualified from ever being president again. Well, I think we're going to have to end it there, uh, Freddie and Sarah. But I hope that the one thing we can agree on that is if Trump does run again, American politics is going to get crazier still. Next, the Scotland editor of The Spectator, Alex Massey, has reviewed Murray Pittock's book, Scotland, the Global History, 1603 to the Present. They join me now to talk about the history of Scottish identity and Scottish nationalism. Alex, I want to start with the conclusion you come to at the end of your review, actually, where you write that there's there's an irony that to be authentically Scottish, Scotland must also be truly British. Could you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Well, this is picking up on on something that Murray comes to the conclusion of himself, which is that a large part of the current case for Scottish independence and his history, I think, is a a wonderful primer for those who want to understand exactly how and why Scottish nationalism has been an enduring force for for so long. I mean, it has had its ebbs and flows, but, you know, is is currently politically dominant in Scotland. You know, his book is essential, I think, in many ways to, to understanding that. But part of the current political case for uh, Scottish independence is based on an assumption that somehow Britain has gone wrong, has left uh, part of its own traditions behind. Um, the post-World War II welfare state is something that Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP are very keen to protect, uh, they would say, return to. And, you know, that post-World War II w- welfare state um was paradoxically a time when the British state played a larger part in Scotland than it perhaps had at almost any previous point in the past 250 years. And so to reclaim that for Scotland is at the same time to acknowledge the appeal, the enduring appeal in certain respects of aspects of Britishness. And so it is paradoxical, perhaps, but but so much of Scottish history is. Well, uh, Murray, I I want to uh, draw on something that, that Alex just mentioned then in terms of the, the, the connection between the, the fortunes of Britain and, and the, the support for Scottish nationalism. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the role, as is mentioned in the review, uh, of the decline of empire, of British empire, and how that's connected to the rise of Scottish nationalism. 
Well, I think there are, there are two things there. The first is that Scotland is much more engaged in the empire actively per capita rather than passively. I mean, I, that is, Empire Day isn't particularly popular in Scotland. Jingoism isn't particularly popular in Scotland. But actually, Scots are very much engaged in the empire. And the, particularly Scots from the relative the educational elite are disproportionately engaged. I mean, the peak figures are, as I, in the book, something like between 30 and 40% of former pupils at one borough grammar school have got some imperial career experience if they haven't spent their whole lives in the empire. So the, it's a huge portion of Scotland uh, uh, of the engagement of a certain group of Scots. It's also very much, I think, the part of the instrumental nature of the union bargain that Scotland can uh, project itself abroad nationally with the support of British hard power, which it wanted to do in the 17th century but didn't have enough hard power of its own to support, and at the same time is undisturbed in doing that, that actually British administrators are very content to have effectively large-scale, and they often patronise, uh, large-scale Scottish organisations in the overseas possessions and colonies, which uh, the aim of which is to get Scots into jobs and to network favourably to secure Scots uh, a better deal. In some ways, that the decline of empire, the decline of empire goes, however, in uh, it takes the the UK and Scotland in two different directions, and it actually changes the nature of the union. So the UK becomes very much more thorough towards a story of itself as a nation state, particularly the Britain that stood alone. And uh, in 1914, the bringing its minorities home, which starts in the 1951 Festival of Britain, where the Windrush generation make their first real appearance. The idea that the empire will actually will, will be all British now and that Britain will be one country which will have all of the empire in it. That very crudely sums up a certain perspective. But the Scottish perspective is very different. It's international. It's much more at home with the joint identity politics of the empire, New Zealand and British, Canadian and British, Scottish and British, that's fine. But actually all those joint identity options start to drop away from, although quite a few Canadians do still identify themselves as British, it's a tiny shrinking, it's a shrinking pool, they start to drop away uh, after the end of empire and Scotland becomes more and more anomalous because it sees itself as a national case a national case very much accommodated as national in the imperial era and now not accommodated as national nearly, nearly as clearly. And the pressure on that, I guess, has been growing steadily since the 1950s and has accelerated recently. It's hard to think, given the state of social media and wider media engagement on Scottish politics or history or language or culture, that Michael Forsyth actually wished to introduce a Scottish history higher into the school curriculum in the middle of the 1990s. So, you know, in a, in a way, the traditional position of unionism has changed very significantly. Unionism itself has changed significantly. I think, I think recognising that, that those, those changes have gone in different directions is one of the, way, one of the key ways to understand uh, modern Scotland, that actually what, is, what for a long time was convergence has become divergence and has become more and more antipathetic as people polarise. Well, on the point, Murray, of that divergence that you mentioned, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Scotland's relationship with Europe, uh, particularly in, in the United, and another union, the, the European Union, and why, the, you, why is it that you think 
that the, the Scottish people just have a very different understanding of uh, the United Kingdom's relationship with, with Europe than perhaps the rest of the United Kingdom? I guess because Scotland, Scotland has always had a different uh, relationship with uh, the world overseas. It's an international relationship before the Union. It's an international relationship during the Union, including with uh, a European relationship which persists after the Union. And it would be an international relationship still. I mean, a lot of Scottish engagement with the EU is quite shallow. There isn't a great deal of sign up to, I, I guess, some of the core areas of EU policy and frameworks. Uh, and that's been noted by quite a number of commentators in Scotland. But although it's not shallow, it is very much there. Scotland, always, Scotland is a Scotland and sort of place. Now, in the review, Alex said that, uh, that it's Scotland and Britain is, uh, is key. And I don't disagree to an extent that there is, a, there is an aspect of Scottish nation which is recreating an idealised Britain north of the Tweed. But there is also Scotland and Europe and Scotland and the world. And I think one of the key problems that Brexit has brought about is that Scotland has no part in the kind of sovereign autarky myth of this isle set in a silver sea. It never did. It was most at home in a very international British framework of multiple identities, and it's least at home in an autarkic, sovereigntist very narrow definition of what uh, of what the United Kingdom is. And Alex, would you agree with that? I mean, you used the word paradox earlier when talking about a lot of ideas about Scottish identity. Is it this sort of these many identities that Murray Murray just just explained there that cause a lot of these different sort of tensions within um, within ideas of of, of Scottishness? Uh, absolutely, and and you know the the thing to remember about our current political arguments in in Scotland is that they are uh, arguments between concepts and versions of Scottishness. This isn't a Scotland versus England thing. Um, Unionism in Scotland has always had a strong nationalist component to it. In fact, it couldn't have survived without that nationalist component. So, you know, in Scotland, actually, everybody is a nationalist. It's just a question of where on the spectrum you find yourselves. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting at present is that, and I wonder if Murray uh, agrees with this, that if if we look at the history of the Union, 1707 to the current day, a lot of the time Scotland has actually been left to its own devices within the Union. And actually, we may one day, or historians of the future may one day, look at the the short 20th century, if you like, 1914 to say 1989, as an exceptional period in British and Scottish history, where actually you had much more centralisation, where the idea of Britain became preeminent, partly because of the world wars, and you actually have a, a Scotland that struggles to maintain its distinctiveness within the Union, which had been a core concern for the previous centuries and is a core concern again now. And so, you know, I think in some ways it's the 20th century that is exceptional, not our current situation. I agree quite a lot uh, lot of that. I think one of the things that's disturbing, though, in the current situation is that I would say that unionism's, unionism's small-end nationalism is in decline. There is a degree of of loyalty test is to neg- is to oppose the idea of Scotland and Scottish culture at all, and that's always seen as nationalist. That's been going for twenty five years. I think that's very dangerous in terms of its tribalism and polarity. Just as the idea is also that Scotland has always functioned totally independent of every- anywhere else except when it's been interfered with. So I mean that, that those things are not those things are not positives. And in a way, I think one of the things I 
we need to remember is that the Conservative Party, as the Conservative Party, didn't actually stand in Scotland in general elections between 1911 and 1970. And the Unionists included the Liberal Unionists, they included Independent Unionists. It was much more like, like a Northern Irish situation in some ways. So a different world, the world of Scottish unionism in the 20th century to what it is now, I think. I mean, I'd agree, I agree with that. I mean, I think if a unionism that can't be assertively Scottish and can't embrace Scottish distinctiveness, can't, uh, you know, welcome more people learning more Scottish history and so on, is a unionism that is on an intellectual road to nowhere and a political road to oblivion. Well, Alex and Murray, thank you very much indeed for, for joining me. Thank you. Finally, screenwriter Gareth Roberts joins me now, along with the comedian and podcaster Rosie Holt. Gareth, in this week's magazine, you write about the downfall of bad taste humour. What's happened to it? I think what's happened is, um, as usual, the answer to this is the answer to a lot of things, um, is Twitter um, and social media in general. Um, I think in about sort of between 2009-2012, this whole new technology appeared that nobody um, understood, nobody foresaw what was going to happen, nobody knew the consequences, and it's had a massive effect on, on the culture in general. And in this particular case, I think what's happened is um, the fear of shaming and the fear of misunderstanding and the encouragement of people misunderstanding by social media, the rewards it gives people, means that we've lost bad taste, that it's kind of been thrown out um, because people pretend or they genuinely don't understand what it's about. And is there a golden age of bad taste humour that you're particularly fond of? There's there's kind of the the late 20th century is a good start. I mean, there's John Waters and then moving into, as I say in the article, the late 90s, 2000s, there was quite a lot of what I thought at the time was quite mature bad taste humour, League of Gentlemen, um, Strangers with Candy, shows like that, which um, at the time I remember thinking, oh, uh, at last we can relax a bit. At last we can, you know, we're being treated as adults, that we understand the form of bad taste, that we're not immediately clutching our pearls. But in the past, I mean, you know, if you look at the immediate, like, post-restoration comedy, a lot of that is in is in huge bad taste, and that only lasts about 10 years. So all the kind of Congreve or those kind of playwrights, they're gone very, very quickly as, um, as a similar thing happens that's happened now. Everyone kind of comes down on them, says this is appalling, the art should be moral and didactic, and it's a similar thing that's happened now, I think. Rosie, uh, I wonder what you make of Gareth's argument. Do you think that he's... Uh overstating the the death of bad taste? I have really mixed feelings on this topic. On the one hand, I think it's good because we've got a lot more diverse comedy audience than we used to. So our comedy now reflects that. And also we've got a lot more understanding on issues that we didn't perhaps before. I mean, things like Little Britain, I remember when that aired and I thought at the time, I thought it was a bit, I, I don't know, I just thought it was a bit cruel. That said, I do agree with Gareth that... I think the problem with social media is things get taken out of context and also there's a lot of assumption of bad faith. So you can make a joke and 
you suddenly have if it's a bit edgy you have a lot of people jumping on it and assuming the worst so yeah I've yeah I've mixed views on it and are there particular bad taste shows or plays that you liked back in the day I mean thinking that particular era that that Gareth uh, mentioned just now as well well I know Gareth mentions in his article the League of Gentlemen loved them they were great and Nighty Night, which um, I appreciated it for all its wonder, but I also found quite hard to watch. I had to do it in small bursts because yes. it was very painful. And do you think there's a, there's a line I like very much in your piece, piece Gareth, where you, you suggest that we're left with now the, the grim, rictus grin humour of the last leg or daily mash or vacuous, awkward, sad comms. Do you think Gareth's being a little harsh on, on these new types of comedies or do you think actually they're... Uh... Yeah, I do, because I think there's there's still lots of really edgy comedy out there. I think people are just having to be more selective about where they put it. Like, for example, the, the um, stand-up Finn Taylor is brilliant. I don't know if you've seen him. But his comedy really does uh, really does kind of play with the line. But he, he also has an awareness of this may work on stage. If I put it on Twitter, I'll probably get lynched. You know, there's there's I think you have to be careful with mediums, certainly. Yes, well, on that point about where the dark humour goes, Gareth. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the sort of dark humour WhatsApp groups that you mentioned at the end of your piece. You suggest that that's a, that's a place now where bad taste humour has had a sort of secret underground existence almost. Yeah, I think it's sort of blown back in a way. What I picked up from various people, I'm, I'm only a member of one, <laughs> but um, speaking to various people, they've said, oh, yeah, I'm kind of in one of those. So I think it's, I think what it all comes back down to is that with a lot of bad taste, I think the joke is about the bad taste. It's not about the subject of the joke. And I think this is where the confusion arises, that it's about making an uptight person pull an upset face, if you know what I mean. It's not so much expressions of prejudice and that kind of thing. It's about teasing at the things that a society finds difficult. You know, in some production companies nowadays, you're getting, um, you're getting scripts shared between different writers and the other writers coming back with their notes on um, social issues and cultural issues. And this is bad, I think. I think it would be very difficult to get something as edgy as The League or Little Britain, which I also, Rosie, I used to watch through my fingers. Um, I think it would be very difficult to get anything like that off the ground. The general lack of sort of mass... The general lack of mass culture, in a way, is a problem here. That, you know, in the 90s, you could have a show like The Fast Show, which was watched by millions of people and was about the country, in a way. Now there's no outlet for that there's no nothing is getting an audience if something gets an audience now like two million that's a hit you know um everything is very niched and siloed which again is a consequence of technology and i think that uh, means we've lost that sense of being able to be on the same page and that we're all in a different silo and that we don't talk to each other or understand each other um, Rosie, what do you think of that? I mean, could it not be argued that actually that's a diversification of comedy rather than actually a, a sort of fragmentation? Yeah, I think we've certainly, as a society, become a lot more tribal. So 
I think because of that, it becomes difficult when you're um, making fun of certain types of people. People question more your your intent. And I think there's been a few cases where comedians have made some risky jokes and people have gone, okay, no, they're making, they're being ironic, they're making a joke. And then they've become very politicised in a certain way. And I think the, the butt of those jokes have then felt a bit betrayed because they've gone, oh, okay, actually, no, they, they do think that. So I think there's there's a bit of that going on. I mean, part of that, the problem is, again, with Twitter is suddenly you know what everybody thinks. So you're not just seeing the comedy, you're seeing people's opinions behind the comedy, which I think kind of <laughs> ruins it, ruins it somewhat. So it is it is a kind of tricky balance. That said, I think comedy is very diverse. It's just not on TV anymore. So you've got podcasts that really go into some I, you know I went on a, a podcast um, a few weeks ago very funny podcast but very goes to quite dark places and you know and equally sort of a sort of social media and things like that but definitely on tv I think people are uh, more scared but then of course if you're big like if you're Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle you may get lots of pushback but you can still release that special and earn lots of money from it so it just it it kind of depends where you are Well, Rosie and Gareth, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of this week's magazine to see the articles discussed in full? I'm William Moore, and do join us again next week. A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.